America's godly heritage. In our previous edition, we looked at the Pilgrim's Progress, just general information about the book as a whole. The fact that it's an allegory, the fact that it is a bestseller, why we're actually looking at it as part of America's godly heritage. In this edition, we're going to be looking at the historical background that led up to why Bunyan was in prison when he wrote the story and what was just going on in the cultural political climate to explain a lot of what's going on in the book. Our Pilgrim's Progress from This World to That Which Is to Come Delivered Under the Similitude of a Dream. Let's go. <laughs> Pilgrim's Progress was published in 1678, at least the first part was. So that's roughly 350 years backwards, but we need to go back another 350 years to 1324 and the birth of a man named John Wycliffe. Now, some of you may have heard of Wycliffe Bible translators. They are named after this man, and you'll soon see why. Wycliffe was genius. He studied theology and law and philosophy at Oxford, and he soon honed in on he wanted to do theology. As he's studying, he's reading his Bible, and he's getting more and more perplexed because he's reading, this is what the Bible says, and yet this is what the Catholic Church is teaching. Now remember at this point in time, the Catholic Church is basically the only Christian religion. This is before the Protestant Reformation. So if you're a Christian, you're either going to be Eastern Orthodox or you're going to be Catholic. Western Europe, you're basically Catholic. Very, very, very rare for it to be anything else other than that at this point in time. So Wycliffe is reading his Bible. He knows what the Catholic Church says, and he's discovering these two things don't go together. In a lot of situations, Catholic teaching is different from what the Word of God says. He's really struggling with this. There are certain major things that you just can't get past in being a Christian, such as the Catholic Church was teaching that you could be saved through your works, not grace through the saving blood of Jesus Christ and believing in the gift of grace that He has given us. They're saying, if you fulfill this list of requirements that we give you, then you'll be saved. And, and that's not right. They were also selling indulgences. Indulgences are basically forgiving you of your sins. So if you're somebody rich, you can go and commit murder, commit assault, lie, cheat, steal, whatever, and then just chop, go right on down to your local priest or bishop fork over some money, and they'll give you this indulgence which says, hey, John Smith, you've been forgiven of all of these sins. Well, that's not how forgiveness works either. Another thing that they had a problem with was the Catholic Church was saying that the Pope was infallible. Clearly, only one person has ever been infallible, and that is Jesus Christ. The Pope was just a man like everybody else. Therefore, he made mistakes. He committed sins. He could make dumb decisions. He could make bad decisions. That's just off to the side again. 
One of the reasons the Catholic Church was doing this and saying this was because they wanted control. If they said the Pope is infallible, well, you can't fight with what he says. The Pope says do something, you have to do it. If a king and a Pope start headbutting about something, the Pope's going to pull the I'm infallible card and he is better than the, the king. Another thing that they had a real issue with was that the church was telling people to pray to Mary, Jesus's mother, instead of to God. Well, you're not supposed to be praying to an intermediary. You're supposed to be praying directly to God. Another big issue was simply that the Bible was being translated, the original Greek, the original Hebrew, and Aramaic, they were translating it into Latin, and that's it. Not anybody's own normal language that they would speak day to day, their vernacular. Only the most highly educated priests could read the Bible. Maybe a few top rulers like the kings and the princes, maybe a few dukes and duchesses could read and write in Latin. They could read and write in their own languages, but not necessarily in Latin. Very few could do that. Therefore, the Catholic Church was controlling the flow of information. Only they knew what the Bible actually said, and they were telling people, this is what the Bible says, whether it actually said that or not, so that they could control what they wanted to control. In this way, they started building up wealth and land and power and all kinds of things that really the church shouldn't be interested in. The church is supposed to be about serving, but the Catholic Church was turning it into being served. This complete dichotomy here of what is supposed to be happening to what actually is happening. And it started making people like Wycliffe really uncomfortable. He became known as the Morning Star of the Reformation because he was one of the first main people to start questioning the church and start pointing out things here are just not right. And the church needs to come back in alignment with God's word. One of the things that Wycliffe did to help this situation was he started translating the Bible into English so that people who were just normal English citizens could read the Bible for themselves and therefore start making their own decisions about what they believed the Bible was teaching rather than being reliant on the church. So now you can see where the Wycliffe Bible translators come in because that's exactly what they still do today. They will go into cultures, they will learn the language, and then they will translate the Bible into the native languages. Whether it's in England, whether it's in China, whether it's in some as yet unknown Amazon tribe, they will go in and they will do what they can to make sure that the Bible gets into their hands in their language. Amazing group. Anyway, back to our history here. One of Wycliffe's most prominent disciples was a man named John Huss, and he was based in Prague. Unfortunately for Huss, he managed to push a lot of buttons of very powerful people, and he ended up getting executed for daring to try to bring the church into alignment with God's word. As he was walking to his place of execution, Huss passed a bonfire at the Episcopal Palace gates. 
he was informed that his books were being burned in the fire. What nice guys. Let's just add a big old insult to the huge and unjust injury we are about to commit here. Once they arrived at the place of execution, they began to stack the straw and wood around him. The bound Huss was given one last chance to recant his errors. He replied, What errors shall I renounce? I know myself guilty of none. I call God to witness that all that I have written and preached has been with the view of rescuing souls from sin and perdition. And therefore most joyfully will I confirm with my blood that truth which I have written and preached. He also cried out, It is thus that you silence the goose, but a hundred years hence there will arise a swan whose singing you will not be able to silence. This was in 1415. Well, his prayer was answered, because in 1517, which is 102 years later, we have Martin Luther. Most people have heard of Martin Luther and his 95 Theses. Well, Martin Luther, he too, reading the Bible and realizing the Catholic Church is teaching one thing in certain areas, but this is what God's Word actually says about those things. He came up with 95 points. 95 Theses, where he felt the Catholic Church had gone astray from God's Word. He nailed those 95 Theses onto the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany. As you can imagine, it didn't go down very well. But, rather than executing him, he was sent into exile. They asked him to recant, and he absolutely refused. He just said, I cannot and will not retract for it is neither safe nor wise to do anything against conscience. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. One good thing about him being in exile is he was able to continue studying God's word, and he was able to translate the Bible into the German language. So we have developing, popping up all over Europe, more of these pockets of people who are realizing this isn't right. We've got to get things going here where we get the church back in line with God's word or we just plain cut ties with them and start anew. Each of these groups might have had different tweaks to their beliefs, but they all did agree to five main points. One, is sola fide, which means by faith alone. Two is sola gratia, by grace alone. Three, sola scriptura, by scripture alone. Four, sole deo gloria, glory to God alone. And five, solus Christus, by Christ alone. Even though these reformers throughout Europe might have had different ideas about the details, they all agreed on those five points. And that is what made them different as well from the Catholic Church. In the next edition of America's Godly Heritage, we are going to look at specifically what's going on in England. We've had a little overview here of reforms up to this point in time. 
And next we're going to be looking at specifically some of the reforms going on in England and the historical situation in England leading up to John Bunyan writing his story. Thank you for listening to this edition of America's Godly Heritage. I hope you have a great day. Bye! If you would like to help support America's Godly Heritage or to view the resources used to make this podcast, just go to patreon.com or vimeo.com and type America's Godly Heritage in the search box. You can also make financial donations at givesendgo.com. Again, just type America's Godly Heritage in the search box. We really appreciate your support. Thanks again. Bye. Thank you.